to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation recorded at the launch of Raymond Gator's Justice and Hope, Essays, Lectures and Other Writings. For more than three decades, the incomparable voice of Raymond Gator has been summoning us to new conversations that deepen our understanding of what matters most to human life and awaken the sense of our common humanity. For Gator, we are never more fully alive than when we are fully present to one another in conversation. In a time when modes of communication tend towards superficiality and self-promotion, when political debates are increasingly inured to lies and even violence, and the moral demands of dialogue give way to a torrent of competing monologues, Gator's invitation to rediscover what genuine conversation requires of us could not be more timely. Raymond was joined in conversation by Maria Tumarkin. Here's the host of the event, Reading's own Mark Rubo. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Reading's. I'm Mark Rubo. I'm from Reading's, and on behalf of Melbourne University Press and Reading's, I'd like to warmly welcome you to the launch of this very important book. We're coming to you today from the land of the Wurundjeri people and the lands of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and any people here tonight. As I say, we're here to launch a collection of major essays from one of Australia's greatest philosophers, Ray Gator, and I'm very proud that Readings is hosting this wonderful event. Proud to have you here, Ray. Thank you so much. And we're very privileged that Maria Tumarkin, the award-winning author of Axiomatic, is going to be in conversation with Ray tonight. Maria and Ray have been friends for many years, so I think we're in for a, a great discussion. And so I'll pass you on to Maria. Thanks so much, Mark. So my name is Maria Tumarkin. I am a first-generation Ukrainian Jewish Australian writer and a once-upon-a-time cultural historian. I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of Woiwurrung and Wurundjeri country and pay respects to the elders uh, past and present and to any First Nation people in the room tonight and indeed to the elders of other cultures in the room tonight. Thank you for being here. When Russia invaded Ukraine on 24th of February last year, my world ended. It felt lonely in Australia. For most people, life continued more or less as before. I remember in early March last year coming out at the back of the house we rent in Elstonwick on Bunwurung country. I was with an old friend who might be here. She is here, I can see her, she's here today, a non-Ukrainian. We sat on a low bench near the lemon tree facing each other. The sky was gray. I lifted my head, maybe even by accident, and saw a little patch of blue sky. I gasped. The pain of seeing blue sky felt like being physically cut. By now, with the referendum and the climate catastrophe and more, 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 so many in this country are walking around in the fog of anguish and despair. I take no pleasure in not feeling quite so alone. But I do think of tonight not as your conventional, perfectly pleasant book launch. It's more like an emergency conversation. In an emergency, Ray is precisely the person I want to talk to. I do want to let you know that we have decided that we will not talk about Israel and Gaza tonight. It will feel like an omission, of course, 
but we believe it's disrespectful to have this conversation crammed between other topics and not given enough time and space. Book ended by speeches and book signings and essentially assimilated into business as usual. It's not business as usual. We're all familiar with silence as complicity, but there is such a thing as speech as complicity too. Speech that comes too early, too easily, too certain, that is declarative, careless, fundamentally self-serving, that seeks psychic release of being, quote unquote, on the right side of history. We prefer to be silent tonight. It will always be an imperfect choice. I'm going to say a few things. I know I've already said a few things, a few things more. Then Ray will say a few things and then we'll talk to each other. And then Ray will sign books. I think that's the plan. Ray and I have known each other for 18 years. We met in 2005 when Ray was asked to launch my first book, Traumascapes. I knew and admired his work. He had no idea who I was. It was actually terrifying to have Ray, of all people, launching my first book, not least because Ray took his job seriously and came wanting to think with me out loud in public about ideas in my book. Whatever happened to legendary philosophers just throwing words at your work and then rushing on to more important engagements, barely registering the fact of your personhood? No, Ray came to talk and he registered everything all right. On the day of the launch, when we sat down to have a conversation, I saw that in Ray's copy of my book, he underlined some lines and crossed out others. Where I grew up, you couldn't even fold books' pages as bookmarks unless you were a book barbarian. Ray's having his way with my book was pretty outrageous. Even then, at our first meeting, Ray recognised an intensity in me which others took at best as yet another first-generation migrant being too much. Even then, he wanted it not to be diluted, for me not to be convinced into toning it down. I, in turn, feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude for an incorruptible intensity in Ray and his work, which in his terms might be called moral seriousness. In Ray's 2017 essay, The Intelligentsia in the Age of Trump, which you'll find in his new book, he writes, and I quote, to call someone to seriousness in a conversation is to call them to an individuating responsiveness to what they have made of themselves, to speak out of a life they have lived as their own and no one else's. End of quote. The accountability Ray's talking about is not merely about being prepared to stand by your words. The fundamental connection between what you say and how you live your life is not an opt-in proposition. I keep thinking about Helen Garner's well-known and typically astute comment about how Romulus, my father, changed the quality of the literary air in this country. For me, it wasn't just Romulus or After Romulus, which is my favourite book of race. Each essay, book, speech, lecture that has race name on it, and many of which are here in this book, each of them has an uncompromising quality of their writer going all the way with their formidable head and their formidable heart at once all the way in seeing the world as it is in not turning away. And this all the wayness not only changes the quality of the air, but keeps this air we share breathable for so many, certainly for me. Ray said once at a writer's festival that the idea that good writing and good thinking are usually aligned is not really true. It was a pretty controversial statement, particularly at a writer's festival that this city is obsessed with. I enjoyed it very much. 
Ray makes controversial statements more often than you think. Ray also says he's not a writer. He revises for clarity only. He does not take pleasure in a well-constructed sentence. He said as much on Monday, this Monday when we met to talk about tonight. I told him I thought he was a writer as opposed to just, just, just a philosopher who writes things down out of necessity because the printing press has been invented so you have to do what you have to do. I'm frequently brought to tears when reading Ray's work. I get goosebumps not because he makes heavens tremble with his lush sentences, but because he does this precious work of making space in language for conversations I need most in my life. I need them most and somehow they are the hardest to have. I often understand his most complex arguments with my heart, not my so-called cognitive apparatus, or more precisely with my being because of what he is able to do on the page. Ray has such an innate feeling of how far language can go, when it needs to stop, when it needs to drop to a whisper, when it cannot afford any ornamentation. Ray does not push language like a trolley ahead of himself, doesn't ride it like a bullet train to get him to destination of choice, does not use it as bricks to build structures out of. This might be at least partially due to Ray's lifelong attention to what he calls human vulnerability to sentimentality and pathos, and more broadly to the counterfeit manifestations of what matters or should matter most to us. There is no thinking without distinctions, he says, and the ability to distinguish between patriotism and jingoism, between love and infatuation, loyalty and civility, grief for others and grieving for ourselves, is fundamental to our moral and political lives. Ray has a nose, maybe even a mother of all noses, for what is not truthful in our thought and speech. But his project is not to expose the counterfeit, but to free our thinking from being engaged in it and corrupted by it. We chatted on Monday, Ray mentioned Simone Weil's point, central to his work, that moral life is not a muscular effort of the will, if it's not that kind of all-stretching, all-straining commitment to the good, what is it in strictly secular terms? In the introduction to his new book, Ray talks about Plato's remark, we become what we love. And then he says, I quote, to Plato's question, what is worthy of our love? I offer two from a number of possible answers. And he's not obviously talking about people or non-human others he loves. Justice is worthy of our love so is the world, irrespective of what happens in it. We can hold pessimistic views about human nature, can be bitterly disillusioned in the possibilities of political action, might feel utterly failed by institutions, might get an instant heartburn when we think about any kind of plausible future, but it should not matter to the way we carry our commitment to justice, to the place of this commitment in our lives. It certainly does not matter to him. What Ray calls an unconditional love of the world is at the centre of his thought, and hopefully we'll get to talk about it in a minute. An unconditional love of the world is also the first section in his new book, Justice and Hope. And this book is not merely a meeting place for Ray's work of thinking in public over the last 20 odd years. It is a powerful book in its own right. It has a unifying sense of purpose and lucidity. It's actually electrifying to see Ray develop ideas over time as the world changes around him. 18 years after meeting each other, Ray and I are friends, dare I say. We love each other. 
He launched my first book when I was fresh off the boat, as they say, and now I have a privilege to launch his. Life moves in mysterious ways. Mystery is one of Ray's subjects, which is another reason I love his writing, whatever he says about it, and I cannot live without his thinking. So I'll hand over to Ray for a moment. I'm speaking only to, to thank people, and I'll read two paragraphs from, from the book. First uh, thanks is obviously to readings, uh, to Chris Gordon, the event manager, and to Mark Rubo. I once asked Chris uh, if it would be okay to have a launch here, it wasn't this or some other book, and she said, yes, of course, this is your home, and it was a lovely thing to say. Now, other, other people, but of course, Maria, of, it's true, I launched Trauma Scapes when she was a young thing, and she's launching this book when I'm an old thing. And as I remarked to somebody, maybe it was to you the other night, the word thing takes on a different inflection uh, when it comes after young and when it comes after old. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, and I, I, I don't know if, if this is presumptuous of me to say, but uh, I'm proud of her, actually. Uh, they're almost like a daughter. If I, she could be, as I mean, I'm old enough to be. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I, wa I, I want to thank uh, my dear friend Robert Mann. And uh, the reason is, uh, when he became editor of Quadrant uh, just after or perhaps it was immediately upon uh, the breaking down of the Berlin Wall, he asked me uh, if I would write for Quadrant. And uh, I wasn't a natural uh, Quadrant writer, but I wrote because he, I trusted him entirely and because I hoped uh, that with the Cold War uh, issue over, Quadrant might return to the spirit of thinkers who had inspired its foundings, left-wing thinkers like Albert Camus uh, and uh, Hannah Arendt and George Orwell. Uh, indeed, uh, Camus, uh, there's a quote from Camus, uh, forms the epigraph to this book, uh, I chose justice in order to be faithful to the world, he said in a letter to German friends. Uh, so uh, I wrote about 50 columns uh, for Rob, and uh, some of them appear in this book. And I think I might not have uh, migrated from the academy had it not been for that invitation. So I'm very, very grateful to, to him. I'm grateful to Scott Stevenson uh, because for I don't know how many years he uh, tried to encourage me to get together such a collection of essays, and I persistently declined. Uh, and finally, I agreed. Uh, so if it weren't for his persistence and for the work he put into preparing it for its publication, uh, we wouldn't be here tonight. And I also want to thank uh, Nathan Hollier uh, for reasons I won't go into. Um, uh, I have a reason to wish for the book to be published this year, and Nathan agreed to do it, uh, even though this request was made of him at the end of March. And I think the um, manuscript came in only at the end of May. Well, and when Nathan left, he's now at ANU. And Catherine McInnes uh, took over the project uh, with, with great energy and sensitivity and grace. Uh, 
Um, and uh, I thank her, well, I thank them both enormously. Uh, um, I also uh, want to thank uh, Duncan Farton, who uh, was the first person I spoke to at MUP. Uh, I want to thank Ellie, Eli McLean, and Holly uh, Henry Saunders, uh, sending out the invitations, and they've been uh, wonderfully generous in their time and wonderfully efficient in their work, which, helped, which is very important. Uh, people have said to me that they like the cover of the book, uh, and I do too, even though I'm a bit embarrassed to say it, because it's, after all, a photograph of me. But uh, the reason I mention it is because the photo uh, was taken by my son-in-law, uh, who sadly died uh, last May, Mark Raphael Baker. Uh, some of you may know of his work. Uh, the 50th Gate was an acclaimed bestseller, and 30 Days, uh, another book. And the book is dedicated to my grandchildren, and one of them uh, is here, Melilla, with her mother. Uh, and it's lovely. <laughs> it's Mimi, it. It's grandpa. <laughs> um, and I, I, I want to thank uh, my wife, Yael, um, because for someone who spent nearly all of his intellectual life uh, protected in the walls, of the, behind the walls of the academy, or as it was then anyway, protected. Uh, entering the public domain in writing can be bruising. And I, I remember an occasion, uh, picked up the phone, and someone says, why don't you and your fucking Jewish wife leave the country? You don't belong here. Uh, and uh, it's not the sort of thing that's usually said at a, a philosophy seminar. So, uh, and there was a time when I published, um, and I, I organised a series of lectures on the invasion of Gaza in 2009 and published a book of essays on it. And I was attacked then by people from the Jewish left, the Jewish right, the Jewish centre, and by Palestinians, and which was, of course, very hard for my wife. So I'm thanking her because of the comfort that she provided at, at that time. I ought to say, um, by the way, the fact that I received all that criticism uh, from so many people, I don't make the fallacious inference that therefore I was onto something. I may not have been. <laughs> because it's a book of essays, it's almost impossible to say what it's about, but I thought I, I would just read two paragraphs from it, which capture. This is from the introduction. We have now far more reason to fear for the world than we had when I expressed that fear almost 20 years ago in an essay, Justice and Hope. And that is why I have dedicated the book that carries the name of that essay to my grandchildren, which implicitly is to all young people. The words with which I then expressed my fear and which then defined the task of that essay now define the task of this book. And this is a quote from that essay written in 2005. More and more, I fear, knowledge of affliction and cruelty will test their, that is younger people, test their understanding of what it means to share a common humanity with all the peoples of the earth. And to a degree almost too awful to imagine, their faith that the world is a good world despite the suffering and the evil in it.
What can sustain that faith? I believe there are a few questions more urgently in need of sober realism in their formulation and in the answers offered to them. So I just wanted to start maybe not in an extremely in an extremely obvious place, which is a good thing, I think. I want to start by asking you about reading. And I remember hearing Tony Birch say some years ago, if you had to choose between being a reader and being a writer, that you would choose being a reader. So I wanted to ask about the place of reading in your life, how you read, why you read, and perhaps if that feels like an interesting question, how do you like being read as well? Yeah. But you can ignore the last bit. <laughs> uh, I, I would agree with, with Tony, I mean, if I, if I had to choose. Uh, because after all I said, I'm not, not a writer. <laughs> so, the books that have been really important to me in my life have been part of what has generated in me a kind of sense of the love of the world. Because they, they go back to Plato, before Plato actually, uh, it's the Greek tragedians, I think, probably even more than the Greek philosophers who've influenced my sensibility. But Plato, as, as anybody who's read my work, figures large in it, although it's not the Plato you would be. It's, I'm not a Greek scholar, and, and most Greek scholars would think what everything I say about Plato is wrong. Greek scholars can constitute a bit of a scholarly mafia, actually. <laughs> I think it's in one of the essays. I, I quote a, a, a famous Plato scholar when he gave the Gifford lectures in St Andrews. These are lectures in natural theology. And he dedicated his lectures to all Plato, lovers of Plato, the quick and the dead. And the quick, of course, being <laughs> meaning in both senses of that word. And it was a wonderful way of expressing a sense of the community of the living and the dead. And if, if, if you feel, feel that deeply, as I do, you live in a kind of continued, an extended continuous present. And that's, that becomes one aspect of how, uh, as it were, uh, the, the, there, there can be a love of the world, uh, which is not a function of weighing up how much good in, there is and how much ill there is in it. If it hadn't have been for my reading, then maybe I wouldn't have it. At this time, which I think is the most depressing time I remember in my life, I'm 77. At terrible times in one's life, one, one, one knows there are these wonderful things that can't be taken from you, provided your attention is to at them. And, and of course, all sorts of things can make you stop attending, stop listening. It can be just laziness, weariness of spirit. Not, not doesn't have to be despair. And what's so wonderful about that remark of Plato is we, we become like what we love and which forms so much of the basis of Simone Weil's wonderful work uh, is that it's, it's really a function of to what you give your attention in your life. And they just are. Ah, it's just a fact. It's not denied. No, it's not theory. There are just wondrous things to which one can give one's attention. And one, one needs to do it especially when so much in the world 
makes you want to weep. Ray, I'm hearing you say it's not a theory and it occurs to me, but I heard you say it many times, something like an unconditional love for the world is not a theory. How do I know that it exists? Because I have seen it. Can you talk about how you think? Because clearly you think not from a place of a kind of, not from a theoretical place, but perhaps into theory at some point. And you often use examples, and we talked about it on Monday when we met up, examples that you think with, that in a sense they're instances of something that you have encountered in the world, and then they prompt your thinking and you think with them and through them. Um, so um, hearing you say it's not a theory is, again, goes back to my sense of the breathable air that, we make for, that you make for so many of us. But I, I just want to ask you to maybe talk a little bit more about it. Well, well my, my work is, is, is formed very deeply in structure by my response to example, things, things I've been a witness to. Witness is, is a complex work, and it, it can sometimes be to someone's writing. But in one of the essays in the book on Primo Levi, there's a passage in it that has been really fundamental to my life. There's been a passage in Hannah Arendt's book on Eichmann, where the presiding judge at the trial, uh, trying to stop the trial from becoming only a, a show trial, which was disrespectful to it, the victims of the Holocaust, amongst other things, uh, was moved to say this trial has one purpose only, and its purpose is justice. It was a remark at many levels. Justice has to be done to the victims, of course. We have to observe proper court proceedings, of course. But the thing that struck me as, 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 as remarkable and has informed so much of my thinking, he was insisting that justice was owed also to Eichmann for Eichmann's sake as a human being. And I know that he thought that because he was a, um, a, a trained in a dramatic tradition of jurisprudence which is influenced by the philosopher Kant and from whom many of us, uh, though we may not know it, get to speak of the inalienable dignity that is possessed by every human being to which is owed an unconditional respect. And he spoke in, in, in these ways, so uh, I'm, it's not a particularly controversial interpretation. But it is, uh, nonetheless, though it seemed what struck me as wondrous is that a remark which seemed at first to be about something as banal as courtroom procedure could be almost sublime because the most natural thing in the world is to say if you want to be treated like a human being, first you have to behave like one. In fact, we can talk about this later, but it seems to on my mind. It around 2014 or 15, when I became utterly dismayed that ISIS were being regarded, members of ISIS were regarded as vermin, which ought to be just off the face of the earth. I remembered Landau's remark that nobody, nobody is vermin. 
What was so horrific about the Holocaust was the idea that some people were vermin and some people had the right to cast them out of this world. But to which I feel I'm bound in a kind of witness because it strikes me as such a wondrous thing. And, one of, and, and something we, we've easily, I think we're losing very quickly, actually. The sense that, it, as Kant put it, that every human being possesses an inalienable dignity. In my book, I'm critical of that formulation of it. But, but, uh, but still, it, it, it's there as part of our... It's, it's, for goodness sake, it's there in preambles of international law. But there are other examples, most obviously my father. Uh, and his friend Hora, who have been throughout my life an inspiration. Uh, I learned from them, uh, as, as I've said, not only the, in, the, in an ordinary sense, what it would be to lead a good life, I don't say I, I do it, but what it would be uh, to do that. Uh, but I learned from them, especially from my father actually, things that are, that are part of moral philosophy and that most moral philosophers don't understand. And one of the most basic things I learned from him, and that most philosophers think it be a kind of contradiction in terms, that you can make a, you, you can make a severe moral judgment of what a person has done, and even of their character, and yet at the same time it not be judgmental. It could be an expression of sorrow, for example. And that's why I mentioned earlier the ancient Greeks. You have it there in Oedipus. You know, Oedipus becomes quite unwittingly, through no fault of his own, for ignorance for which he was not culpable, the slayer of his father and married his mother. And the chorus responds to his affliction, not just the fact that he plucked out his eyes in despair, and unwittingly exiled himself from the kingdom. But it responds to him with a, what I call a severe pity. But for the wrongdoer they believed he had become, and he believed he had become. And the reason I call it severe is that it wouldn't let him off the hook. Later on, actually, in, in another play, he says, I did it unintentionally, how could I? But you don't have to go to Greek tragedy for this. Parents sometimes sorrow for the wrongdoers their children become, recognising fully the severe moral description that has to be applied to their conduct. And at the same time, it's sorrow. And if their children are not remorseful, the sorrow is even deeper. So that has been really important to me, and I saw it in my father, and it's been part of my philosophical work, critical of the discipline. And there's another example that I first wrote about in A Common Humanity, where I was 16 years old, just before I went to university, and I worked for three months in a psychiatric hospital, then called the Rundle of Mont Park, and I was in one part of it where people had been for 20 or more years, and they were treated really brutishly by the nursing staff and often by the psychiatrists. For example, they, they would often soil themselves and be sitting out in this uh, a bit of sand outside in this 
sort of cage-like board, and then they'd be shoved into a shower, half-dressed, and clothes being pulled on, and a, with a mop washed down like an animal, like an elephant at the zoo, in, in that hospital and, and attending to, to these patients was a handful of psychiatrists. Worked devotedly for them to be treated decently, humanely as well. Uh, and I remember that was the first time I ever heard the expression inalienable dignity. One of them said, even these people have it. I didn't know what he meant by it, but I remember being moved by it. And I remember being inspired by these uh, people. Uh, they, they are mocked fiercely by the nursing staff as being fools, idealistic fools and so on. Couldn't, couldn't one see that these people had nothing whatsoever to live for? There was no cure. No, there, none of them would come out of there. One day a nun came to that ward and started talking to the patients. Suddenly I was struck with a kind of wonder when I realised that she was responding to them in the way her body moved in relation to them in the tone of her voice and so on without a trace of condescension, as though mysteriously these people who appeared to have lost everything in their lives had somehow not lost. I've been trying ever since then to find the words with which to express this. When I started thinking about it, what struck me as really, it was kind of interesting, I suppose is the right word. I mean, you know, banal way, food for thought, was that she revealed that the psychiatrists had, despite themselves, been condescending. I was able to see that only in the light of her behaviour, and I realised I had, I had too. The other thing that struck me was that in the case of the psychiatrists, I admired them, their virtues, what they were prepared to put up with, their compassion and so on. But in the case of the nun, she dropped out of the picture altogether. I mean, she must have had lots of virtues, obviously. But what was at the focus of my attention was that she had revealed something I n never thought could ever be possible. That you could respond to such people who, well, if you read discussions of euthanasia, you realise that most people would certainly think that if they were to live such a life, they would rather not live it. From one very ordinary, natural perspective, nothing any more to live for. Or anyway, nothing any more to live for that could inspire anything more than a slightly condescending affection, which was in fact shown to them by an occupational therapist who was a really good-hearted woman. But she would say, let's for example say, that's very good Fred, last week he made 10 close bags, this week 15. But what struck me as interesting, and this is what I've been trying to express, is that it seems to me her attitude is the natural attitude, the attitude that reason dictates. When people have lost everything, such they live a life that you could barely ever dream you would want to live if you suffered such affliction then there's nothing more to show to them except that good-hearted affection, kindness. So that's a different kind of example that has been, in, I mean, differently in kind from those that 
don't inspire the thought this is mysterious or this, this goes against the nature of reason or all our thoughts about human nature. I can go in about 10 different directions now <laughs> and I almost wish that we could have at least 10 universes in which 10 simultaneous conversations can, well, can occur. Well, i tell you what. Yeah. You know, after we spoke on Monday and we talked about it, I said, I'm not a writer. And you said, well, I think you are and all that. I thought about that. So of course, I'm very grateful to the response that my works have received, especially Romulus. And I know that it wouldn't have... People wouldn't have responded as they have if it weren't written in a certain way. So, I, I mean, I just accept that. And I wouldn't want anyone to be offended by my saying I don't think of myself as a writer or being coy or disingenuous. But what struck me after our conversation was that really what's been really important in my life is discussion, not writing. As a teacher, what really mattered to me were tutorials. And I was so lucky to have taught in a university where tutorials were small, where you could actually have discussion with two, three, four people, and be in, an, in a tradition of philosophy, or not just philosophy, an academic tradition, but in this case philosophy, where there, you, there were not God professors, where you actually uh, were in discussion with your students. And we were always open to your students showing that something you said was wrong, or making you rethink. And that was, a, I, uh, we used to get students from France often, for example, for a, a, a semester or something like that. And they were incapable of this kind of discussion, partly because they also always attended what they called seminars, which were 100 people, nobody could say anything. And their professors never would brook any, not, you know, they, they were God professors. So I was, I was very, very lucky to have been a teacher and to be able to have that kind of discussion. But it also, I remembered that around 214, when I was becoming worried, as I said, about ISIS, and you will remember that in 2015, you're on the board of the Writers' Festivals, and I asked you whether the Writers' Festival would give me a standalone lecture because there's something I felt I wanted to speak about urgently. And it was about my growing fear. I think, I think I called the lecture The Frailty of Our Idea of a Common Humanity. Uh, that we are losing our sense uh, that nobody should be treated like vermin. I was terribly worried by nationalism. I was terribly worried. One of the things that struck me about ISIS was that you could see that these young men were joining up partly because they're attracted by the romance of war. And I was, I, and I thought, uh, and in all sorts of ways, I could see young people again being attracted. I began to get worried about the cloud cuckoo land people were in at the Gallipoli. I grew up actually uh, very hostile to Gallipoli and all that. I grew up on a on a play one day of the year where that was just a matter of people being drunk and vomiting and all that. And then I was very upset about the way our People who came back from Vietnam were treated uh, really shabbily. And I say that as someone who was a registered as a conscience objector, so I was opposed to it. And so I was glad at first when the dawn ceremonies started coming and I thought this was a good thing. But then when I see these young kids, tears in their eyes at, 
the dawn ceremony talking nonsense about how they fought for liberty and it wasn't and so on in an awful cloud cuckoo land. And I was particularly worried too about the condescension shown to anything that was called attachment of country by people on the left that I thought myself to be part of. So I wanted to talk about love of country, which again I had seen, been witness to. Love of country that wasn't jingoism, that had no trace of it, that there could be such a thing. And I felt very strongly that attachment to country is not going to die soon. It's going to be there. And, but it is nearly always a fearful, dangerous thing that makes people slaughter other people, that makes people support the slaughter, that makes people silent when they should speak, and so on. And so I wanted to, to, talk, to talk about that, but it, I didn't write. I, I started giving variations of this lecture all over the world, in the UK, in the States, in Europe. Whenever I was invited to give a, a philosophy to a Thing. I would also give a public lecture on this because it seemed to me that though of course it's a lecture, it's not like a tutorial, it's still face to face and there are questions afterwards and that's what it struck me that if, I, if I'd been a writer, right, that is if I thought writing was somehow fundamental to my identity and to what, I would have written, I would have been writing instead of perhaps arrogantly and presumptuously, thinking I should, <laughs> as it were, tour the world giving, giving these warnings, feeling fearfully vindicated in my fear with when Brexit came and then Trump came. And now, too. That's all I'll say about now. I guess part of the way that I keep insisting that I see you as a writer is maybe, and I tried to talk a little bit about it in, in my short speech, is about your relationship with language. And I think about what Toni Morrison said about language, that language is an act with consequences. And I feel that that's how you treat language and you also say that in order to think, you actually have to have an ear for natural language. So you have to have a, like a, a, really, a real ability, and I guess I tried to talk about that as well, to distinguish between all kinds of things and to hear the tone, right? And to hear how language is being used and misused and abused, etc. And that's fundamental to thinking. And perhaps when that lands on the page, whenever you decide that it's time for it to kind of be on the page, that, that relationship with language strikes me as what I may call the deepest care that you take, the absence of, you know, the, the size of your bullshit detection mechanism. When it comes to every word, to, when it comes to every thought, I know when I read you that when you say the word love, you mean it and you mean it all the way. When you say the word justice, again, it just goes all the way, right? And so there is no, there's no flippant use of words. There is no kind of striving for effect. There is no kind of attempt to influence, persuade, etc., which kind of... I guess in some way, and this will end up in me asking me twelve, asking you twelve questions at the same time. But sort of takes me to how you conceive conversation. The conversation is not a debate. It's not an act of trying to persuade each other and, and pull each other into one corner or another. And perhaps it is more like when it works, 
when something really special happens. Maybe it is like closer to your experience with seeing the nun, that in the light of the other person's presence, perhaps a, a sentence they said, perhaps their body language, something is illuminated that you couldn't see or find thinkable before, right? So what is my question, Ray? There's just absolutely no question, other than me trying to convince you that you're a writer, which has become a thing. I, I don't know why, but I, I'm just thinking, let's, t let's talk about the title of the book, because that really matters, Justice and Hope. Uh, the conception of hope that doesn't have any optimism in it, and you talked a little bit already about it when the unconditional love of the world does not presuppose that the world loves you back, does not, is not predicated on your assessment that the world is a good place or has more goodness or badness, it has no conception of a future that somehow is going to be better or will relieve us of a sense of dread, right? So hope has a very particular meaning when you talk about it and so does justice and being on the cover of this book and I love the cover too. These words matter. Maybe we should spend a little bit of time with them, I think. I mean, justice has many faces, and I think the most fundamental one is the one that was expressed by Moshe Lander, that is an unconditional respect for every human being, for reasons I won't go into, but it has to do with what I felt the nun revealed. To say that she responded to the inalienable dignity of these people sounds too heroic. It's in the wrong key, inalienable dignity. Even more so that an example from Primo Levi that I talk about. I mean, I think what she revealed was the, what I've called the inalienable preciousness of these people. Inalienable because not worst evil doing uh, or the worst affliction can alienate you from that preciousness. So th that for me is the deepest sense of justice and in the more ordinary sense of justice that we think of as social justice and where we're concerned with equality and the distribution of goods and so on. And of course with justice as we think of it when we seek it at a trial, for example. All these forms of justice become deepened by this more what I take to be the more fundamental. What I conceive of as hope, it's not so much an orientation to the future in, in, the, in the more ordinary sense of hope where you, when we say, I hope this or that will happen. The more fundamental orientation is, is to retain that sense of the love of the world, which is, for me, connected to what I think to be the inalienable preciousness of each and every human being, to trust that you can keep your attention on the things that can nourish that in you. That's what I call hope, that trust, that attention to things that are wonderful. Okay, the conversation is not over. I have not known anyone who believes more, Ashley, in face-to-face -face conversations than you, Ray. So I will not consider this conversation concluded <laughs> even remotely, yeah. but I thank you for it and for the absolute privilege of having it with you. And having it with you in public, which also matters, I think it's really important to do that as well, and you've always done this. If it's not too sentimental or pathos reading, perhaps we can applaud the privilege of <laughs> actually being uh, in your company. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you, Maria, so much. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. And thank you all for coming and for being such wonderful listeners to such a wonderful conversation. Thanks a lot. Justice and Hope is available via all reading stores and at our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations, great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.